Welcome back to another episode of the Cellar Door Society. This is Jacob. I'm James. I'm Ash. And we are so excited to talk to you all again about what we are bringing to you this week. But before we uh, jump into uh, what we are bringing to the table today, um, James was talking about a good idea and uh, he wanted to chat about some places that we wanted to visit first when we get an opportunity to do so and record live out in the field, so to speak. Um, So why don't you kick it off, James? I mean, I don't know. I was just saying whatever we are at. It was a brainstorming session. What are we most excited about? Do we want to go somewhere haunted and try to go the full on out permissions to stay overnight somewhere and all that and like see what we can find or do we want to well, do some just cool background stuff at you one know? point like, weren't you two talking about like breaking into like some no breaking some, in of uh, things i no, i specifically remember a conversation where you guys <laughs> told me i would need like tactical gear uh, I think there I was think there was some over exaggeration like, yeah. going okay. on. Okay, maybe right. like you throw on a lab coat, bring a clipboard. So yeah, I'm I'm totally down for that. <laughs> if that was a job, I would take that job. Like if mm-hmm. if there was a jo- if somebody would hire me to like talk my way into a because I know that's like a form of uh, like espionage and stuff. Like a lobbyist. Right? No, more so like, hey, I need you to find your way to like Tom Miller's laptop, and it's right. in this, and then I got to pretend to be like. You know, whoever, just try and get my way in there. But I, no, not, nothing like that. I'm, you know, like, do we want to just find a, you know, go to a nice national park, set up in a, a nice section, and just do it within nature, or do we, you know, like what? Ideas. I'd love to go down to. Um, have you guys been to Area Fifty One? No. That's hell of far away. I thought we were brainstorming here. I mean, fair. Touche. Touche. Pick a side. Um, yeah, Area 51 was really cool. I went down there a couple years back. This is 2020. And uh, just really cool. Yeah, obviously you hear all the stories and stuff. And then to see it in, like, real life, it was fun to be able to, you know, put a real memory to the stories. They have this little town it's called rachel nevada it's the last town before you get to area 51 and they have a little uh, restaurant in there called the little little ailey inn um, <laughs> and they sell like tchotchkes and whatnot and they have normal food but uh yeah it was cool we also saw the black mailbox when i was out there um have you guys heard about this no but save it okay save it. yeah maybe i'll do a, a report on the black mailbox soon in the whole area then there's also like a lesser known spot uh, called SR22. Oh, I'm actually wearing. I do actually. I have heard about I'm SR22. Wearing an SR22 shirt from when I went down there. Oh, that's cool. a sick shirt. Thanks, dude. That's that's the first place that came to my mind would be to go wow. back to Area 51. Um, but I'm sorry that wasn't very reasonable for you. James, <laughs> no, no, so. I apologize. I apologize. Duh. It just I was shocked. I think it was a shock response. You know. Yeah. But a- Ash, what do you think? There's also um, a place near the sand dunes that apparently there's been a lot of alien sightings okay. and they have a little watchtower set up oh, and I think I know about this. a place where you can leave offerings to them. Hmm. And it's crazy like how many offerings Get have been left. left there. That would be really um, cool to see. Yeah. That'd they have sick. like a little, a very, very tiny, I don't, you can't even say museum, but like maybe an informational room. Like a shrine almost. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, but there's a lot of metaphysical stores and interesting stuff like that. That uh, would be a closer right up my alley. Yeah. place, like not and as James, cool, but very close to uh, 
I'll never mention distance. <laughs> Ever. <laughs> I don't know. If I had to pick a place, I'm thinking a mine. A mine? Like an old mining town or some sort of like, even if we, uh, I think it would be really cool to just be able to set up in the middle of a mine tunnel and like have the echoing and everything and just, I don't know. I think that would be sick. Just find a, a pretty infamous mine with some history behind it. And that would be pretty cool. Being an actual seller. Yeah. I'll have to, the logistics into what the audio editing might turn out to be <laughs> with trying to get the echo. Uh, that would be cool, though. That would be a cool one. I mean, I'd you be know, down I, for I it. think it's possible. I think yeah, it's and we've got right. plenty of mines in the area, so um, close there, too. All right, yeah. I'm done ribbing you on the, <laughs> <laughs> on the distance. Um, well, I'll jump into what I'm bringing this, this week here. Um, I want to start by asking you guys both. Uh, when I say the word sigil, what pops to your head? I'll start with you, Ashley. Like a little symbol okay. that you can carve or make or wear that serves a purpose. Awesome. Yeah, I think it's awesome. James? Chemistry. Chemistry? First first thought, no idea. It just sounds very uh, scientific, science-y. Sigil. I like it. I, I like that you said chemistry, too. Because, um, you know, our... Uh, our early chemists were the alchemists, right? Mm. Uh, so that's right. cool. So Wikipedia defines a sigil as a type of symbol used in magic. The term typically or usually refers to a pictorial signature of a deity or a spirit, such as an angel or a demon. In modern uses, especially in the context of chaos magic, a sigil refers to a symbolic representation of the practitioner's desired outcome little history, uh, the use of symbols for magical or cultic purposes has been widespread since at least the Neolithic era. The term sigil derives from the Latin sigillum, which means seal. In medieval magic, the term sigil was commonly used to refer to occult signs, which represented various angels and demons, which the practitioner might summon. The magical training rooks, called grimoires, often listed such sigils. And then a particularly well-known list is the Lesser Key of Solomon, which I have brought today. So the Ooh. Lesser Key of Solomon. Um, why don't you, you like. just... Yeah, uh, there we go. Oh, Vanna White it for you. Yeah, there you go. So the Lesser Key of Solomon uh, possesses basically a variety of different seals or sigils for specific deities or spirits, specifically um, demons or lesser demons. Biblically, Solomon was a uh, guy who was purported to have controlled all the demons and sealed them into a basically a big jar of sorts. And so for our listeners who can't see what I'm showing, it's basically a reference text with a bunch of you could call them witchy or strange looking symbols, um, some information behind them, um, hmm. and then some information on the spirit or how you would use the seals or sigils to I mean, invoke I, or evoke. I don't think they look kind of witchy, if you would. I, you know, I'd say ancient. You know, like this one is reminiscent of Aztec structures and symbols, and this one's reminiscent of an old English type of, uh, you know, like crusade or something of that nature. You know, sure. Witchy. I guess uh, when I see it, it just looks like, uh, you know, I've never seen either of these on the side of a truck, right? <laughs> so uh, <laughs> kind of just like outside of the realm of your normal day-to-day. -day. Right, right, right. But I thought it might be a cool one if, uh, Ashley, you want to oh, take yeah, a look yeah. at all through that yeah. there. The Lesser Key of Solomon lists 72 princes of the hierarchy of hell and are given for the magician's use. 
Such sigils are considered by some to be the equivalent of the true name of the spirit and thus granted the magician a measure of control over the beings. Huh. So kind of the idea was maybe you struggled with, let's say, lust. Maybe lust was something you struggle with right. in your life. So using this book, you would find or interact with a deity or an entity that represents lust. Okay. And maybe you would bind it to something or, or do something to distance yourself from it. Or you could even, maybe depending on how you're leaning or inclined, you could bargain with it to uh, make things better for you. Um, so that was kind of the idea behind it is you have all these demons or devils represent different sins or actions. Right. And then you would then, depending on what you need or what your desire was, pull the appropriate one down to work with. Hmm. That's interesting. Yeah, yeah, I like them. I yeah. think they're cool. So uh, we're going to talk about a specific guy, um, Austin Osmond Spare. Hmm. He was an artist and occultist. He lived from 1886 to 1956. We're talking about him because he developed his own unique method of creating and using sigils, which has had a huge effect on modern occultism. Spare did not agree with medieval practices of using sigils to represent uh, these supernatural beings. Spare believed that like a devil of lust was just a personification of your own subconscious, and it wasn't actually its own entity. It was just your projections of yourself, essentially. Um, so he created this method of making sigils, and we call it the word method. So we're going to be talking primarily about that one. Um, his technique has become a cornerstone of chaos magic. So the idea behind creating sigils, or, or why would you want to create a sigil? Maybe you require something. So I, I use sigils in my life to help me accomplish, maybe I need a new job. So I'll take a concept as big as I need a new job. I will create a sigil of it. And then uh, and we're going to review some of this. I will then basically send it out. There's a couple different process steps. The first step being you create the sigil, something that's personal to yourself, something that you have a real legitimate desire for. And, and it should be something important. Uh, it should be you know really something that resonates with you. I want a blue car does not resonate as much as, hey, I want this promotion, or I want something that I've been working towards to actually happen. Or maybe it does. Maybe that blue car is super important to you. I can't really say what is and what isn't. Then you need to charge the sigil. We're going to cover a couple different ways that they've outlined to charge it. You have to send it off, and that tends to be the hardest part, is the sending it off, and that uh, really comes down to kind of forgetting it. So we're going to be quoting a lot from two specific books. Um, the first one being from author Peter Carroll, uh, and that's called Lieber Knoll and Psychonaut. And then the second one is this one here, Practical Sigil Magic, um, and that Ooh, is Frater U.D. I definitely thought sigil with, with a C-Y. Uh, C-Y. But okay. I, I, I didn't know how to spell it, so C-S-I-G-I-A. S-I-G-I-L. Yeah, it's good. good. Good to know. In these texts, the uh, authors refer to us, the practitioners, as the magician. Um, a magician is completely gender neutral. So anybody can be a magician, whether you're a, a however. they, them, however you associate yourself with. The magician may require something 
which they are unable to obtain through the normal channels. It is sometimes possible to bring about the required coincidence by direct intervention of will, provided that this does not put too much of a strain on the universe. And what they mean by like strain on the universe is um, generally speaking, when it comes to magic, you're going to have a greater success with doing something that is closer to the realm of possibility, you could say. Um, so if I all of a sudden started levitating, right? Right. That would require a lot of, I guess we call it processing power, right? Because now we're blowing all these people's minds mm -hmm. that we have some... Mm -hmm. Whereas me getting a promotion or a job or something, people get promotions and jobs all the time. Right. You can't so, ask for the world's money. Right. Yeah, yeah. 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 Um, I mean, you can. It's not going to work. But whether or not it becomes realized, you know, kind of depends on some external factors. But uh, generally speaking, things that we put out there have a greater success when they are in line of something that is common or could be normal to happen right mm -hmm. he says the mere act of wanting is rarely effective as the will becomes involved in a dialogue with the mind this dilutes magical ability in many ways the desire becomes part of the ego complex the mind becomes anxious of failure and the will to not fulfill the desire arises to reduce fear of failure so basically he's going on to say just saying, hey, I really want that job isn't always enough to actually make it happen. Because uh, when when we're just putting it in the front of our mind, we're just thinking about it, we start having our own fears come up. You know, am I good enough to get this promotion? Um, you know, did I work hard enough? Should I be working harder? And then you start getting into that frame of mind where it's like, why should I even try? I know I'm not going to get this, right? And so you're kind of convoluting the whole desire with all these exterior thoughts that, that don't really help you. Often the wish for results only arises when it's been forgotten. And this last fact is the key to sigils and most forms of magic. Sigils work because they stimulate your will to work subconsciously and bypassing your mind. So you want to keep these things, these concepts, these desires in the subconscious, right? We don't want to be thinking about them all the time. We don't want lust for the end result, fantasizing oh, it's going to be so great when I get that promotion because we're keeping it at the front of our mind and then these thoughts come back. The three parts, as we've talked about, are creating the sigil, charging the sigil, and losing the sigil to the mind. So let's talk a little bit about charging and losing the sigil. So a sigil, a sigil, that's a no, that's a no. <laughs> I guess that'd that be a different closer. section. No, that's with the C Y. Oh, that's yeah, a C Y. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah okay, that's the C Y. Okay. That's the uh, that's the other the Western pronunciation. The Western of, pronunciation. Yeah, of course, yes. Of the sigil is charged at moments when the mind has achieved quiescence, like uh, stillness, inactivity, mm -hmm. med like a meditative state of mind. This could be through magical trance, when high emotionality paralyzes its normal functioning, so moments of great sadness, anger, fear, things like that. At these times, the sigil should be concentrated upon either in the mind as a ma mantra or drawn out. Some of the times when a sigil may also be charged are at the moment of an orgasm, great elation, times of great fear, anger, embarrassment, times of intense frustration or disappointment. Uh, alternatively, when another strong desire arises, this could be lust, this could be jealousy, things like that. If you are to forget this desire, you are to send this desire away and instead incorporate focusing on the sigil, you can also charge it as that. 
After holding your sigil in the mind as long as possible, we want to banish it by evoking laughter. And uh, you're going to find evoking laughter is a it's a prominent theme in chaos magic. So laughter is one state of being that has no polar opposite. Hmm. So for sadness, we have happiness. For rage, we have compassion. Uh, for laughter, it is laughter and non-laughter. Well, couldn't you say yelling is kind of the opposite of laughter? Yelling is not an emotion. That would be an action, right? So what is the intention behind your yelling? Anger. Anger. And so, so the opposite oh, of anger okay, would be I see. So it has to be right? directly related to emotion. It can't be a uh, product of an emotion. Yeah. Think okay. of that time, maybe the last time you've been maybe with a partner or a friend. or Maybe you're watching a movie. When something strikes you that is so funny, it is all-consuming. In that moment, you are right. just laughing, right? There's right. not, there's nothing going on. It is just this, this laughter. There's not an opposite of that except for non-laughter. Okay, um, and so it's used as kind of like a a period or a cleansing, similar to like coffee beans at a perfume stand, right? It's like a palate cleanser. It's right. like a reset. Additionally, when you begin to laugh at the world, you kind of reinforce to yourself that uh, this is all a joke, but in the best way. Like, uh, I, I personally believe that we live in a world of illusions and we live in a world of uh, mirage, basically. It's all created by our own mind, and I believe it is malleable and we can change it. And so when I send a sigil out and my desired result is produced or realized, I laugh at it because A, it happened and that's great. I'm freaking happy, right? So that's making my day. I'm having a good time. And B, it happened. Hmm. I changed my world, right? So I'm, I'm further recognizing that this is possible and that this is, I hate to call it a game because it trivializes life, right? right? But that's kind of the mentality that I approach life with is that uh, nothing is set in stone. So let's continue some more here. Now we're going to talk a little bit about losing the sigil. To successfully lose the sigil, both the sigil form and the associated desire must be banished from normal waking consciousness. The magician strives against any manifestation of either by a forceful turning of his attention to other matters. Sometimes you could burn your sigil, you could bury it, you could mm -hmm. throw it in the river. There are other sigils like a word one, like a mantra. Um, things like this, you can kind of forget about the the primary desire behind that. Because if you say something enough times, it kind of becomes... Like if you say butter 50 times, like halfway through, you're like, what the hell am I saying? <laughs> like it just doesn't... Is this even a word? Right, yeah. You start questioning it a little bit. But ultimately, the best method is by laughing and turning your mind elsewhere. So typically when I... And banishing something when I finish my ritual, as I've mentioned, I like to laugh as hard as I can. Sometimes you kind of have to trick yourself into it and you start with like a hoo, hoo, hoo. but then that makes me laugh, right? And then, then I'm chuckling and my partner thinks I'm crazy. I'm laughing by myself in a room. Um, and then like immediately go do something else. So like I'll go check the weather for tomorrow or I'll go listen to a podcast or start reading a book. Just anything to distract my mind and to move elsewhere. So we're going to talk about the creation of sigils now and some of the methods associated. 
a couple of methods we'll review for creating sigils. Uh, the primary one I like to use is the word method. This was the one created by um, Austin Osmond Spare that we talked about earlier, so we'll go into this. There's also the pictorial method and the mantric method. The pictorial method um, is essentially making making a picture about everything. Of all these, if you decide to start looking into these and practicing this on your own, all of this is intense, intensely personal to who you are. Uh, there's really no right way to make it. As long as it makes sense to you, that's what matters. Um, and you'll find that most magic is that way. Right. What resonates with you is ultimately your should be your driving force. It should be your North Star in life. And so the same deal with your, if you try the word method and it's not working, try another method or even make up your own methods you know these don't have to be the end-all be-all the mantric method is uh basically taking a desire and turning it into a mantra uh -huh. so i had one for a little while that was matha sinrata um and it was in reference to a specific thing i was looking for mm -hmm. and so i would basically incorporate that in my normal meditation so Again, what works for you is all that matters. We're going to talk about the word method. I think it's the easiest one to kind of get into right away, and it would be easy for people who have never dealt or dabbled with these kinds of things to uh, do at home. So the first thing is you need to, no matter the method you're going to do, is you need to formulate a sentence of desire. Um, and I kind of brushed about it earlier, but it should be something that is personal to you. It should be something that really matters and resonates with you. And you want to write that out on a piece of paper. Um, I prefer paper. You could do it online or on a computer if that's your preferred medium. Um, I just love pen and paper. Once you have it written out, you want to start removing all the duplicate letters. So go down the words mm -hmm. and you know the second time you see a letter, you just cross it out. And then with these new letters, you're going to write them all out on a line. So now you're going to have just part of what you had before. With these letters, you now kind of combine them. And this is where your artistic liberties should be taken. You, you're basically taking these letters and you're gonna put them all into one, one mass or one symbol. And how you do that is completely up to you. There's no right or wrong way, as long as it, it looks good and it doesn't, it doesn't look like words. Yeah. Yeah. You don't want it to still spell out, you know, what you're doing. You kind of right. want to make it, I like to say witchy, but you kind of want to make it just a little bit, uh, it's, it's outside of what you would normally, like I said, you're not going to see it on a truck probably. Right, right. right. And that process can take as long as you want. It can be super fast. Like sometimes if I just need to get something out quick, it'll be fast. If it's something that's like very big concept, I'll usually spend time with it, but ultimately that is completely up to you. And then, then we got to charge it. So there's a couple different options out there for charging it. There's kind of some trial and error with finding what works for you. Mm -hmm. They have a lightning method uh, that's been talked about. It is essentially a lot of a lot of the texts will refer to the orgasm being the perfect method for charging a sigil. It's a moment of complete euphoria. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so focusing on a sigil at that time has been proven to be the most effective way to both charging and forgetting it. There's also a variety of different methods and postures that you can do, whether they are, there's one called the, uh, 
I believe it's called the deathless posture. Uh, you posture yourself in like a small closed environment, much like this closet probably. <laughs> um, you keep it dark, you put a mirror in front of yourself and you basically just sit with you in the mirror and then your sigil maybe is taped to the mirror or you could draw it on with a marker and you just spend time focusing on that. Um, some weird shit's gonna happen. Typically, I don't know if have you guys spent any time looking in a mirror when it's dark? No, there's a lot of paranormal theories around that, so I pretty much avoid mirrors. Sure, sure. Yeah, yeah my face always changes. Do you experience that at all? I also kind of have a weird distrust of mirrors. Okay, yeah. Especially in the dark. Yeah. So, no, I haven't I haven't tried that. Fair enough. Then, yeah, maybe don't dabble, but uh, <laughs> there's plenty of methods out there. Yeah, I noticed, like, really early on, if I stared at a mirror when the lights were dim or dark that my face became not my face and then when you would observe it it was back but then i would find myself getting to a certain point where it just felt scary well so you know i mean like pulling the trigger right there is some psychology behind uh your mind will create things in dim light because it's searching for what that object could be Sure. And so if you can't see, there is some uh, proof that your mind will create one, what's in your subconscious is often what happens. Mm -hmm. Or two, it'll just make things malleable to your eye because there's it can't form objects. It's very interesting. Yeah, the mind, uh, it's a powerful thing. It is. And I think we're also finding more and more that the universe acts a lot like computers do. And uh, it's intriguing the interfacing between the two. It's been very interesting to me. And then banishing it, uh, as we've discussed, sending it away. And that's the whole process. Um, so it sounds deceptively easy. It sounds like I've just given you some steps to uh, write some stuff on a piece of paper, look at it, and then uh, good things will happen. But it kind of, it's as easy and complicated as that. What I have found to be the most impactful or surprising things were um, the desires my initial desires tended to be so, I guess you could call them base in nature, uh, maybe more materialistic leaning, maybe I want something now. And I found my success with those things was limited, um, limited number. But I found when I, when I was working on myself, you know, hey, I, I, I wish I could do X, Y, Z because I know it would help me out for other things in right, the future. Right. I found that to be a lot more productive I wanted to start talking about sigils because I'll be reporting specifically, I'm going to be talking about chaos magic in depth. And, and this isn't a closing the book on sigils. We will kind of go more into it. I don't want to overwhelm right. new listeners. We can, we could say we're dipping a toe, right? Um, but I do want to kind of set up some, I guess, some concepts and whatnot before I jump right into chaos magic, because yeah. uh, I think it'll help kind of make sense of uh, some of the things that we'll be talking about. I mean, we are all about learning and like educating, you know, not necessarily just telling stories and, yeah. and all that. But it's interesting because it sounds so similar to uh, manifestation boards or things of that nature, right, where you put up the images that you want or the things that you want in image form on a board. And you don't necessarily look at it every day, but maybe you do meditate in front of it at times or whatever. But it's that same building a subconscious continuous thought mm -hmm. on what you're looking for. And if correct me if I'm wrong, but like the theory behind that is as your subconscious eats it, it's going to find ways to complete those actions in your day to day without you like being front front load conscious yeah. of it. No, I think you're definitely on it. I think uh, you're kind of hitting the nail on the head between like a uh, like a dream board and a sigil is right. both of them are putting intentions out there 
and then saying, hey, this is something I really want, and I'm, I'm trying to bring it to myself, right? Mm-hmm. I'm bringing this into my normal world or my waking reality. With sending it to the subconscious, that, so it ends up kind of opening up a bigger Oh, I'm sure, I'm sure bag there's, of yeah, worms, right? Yeah. So I guess... And just, we'll, put, just pull we'll, one yeah, worm we'll, out of we'll the bag pull, today. We'll pull a couple worms out. So <laughs> generally the idea is your subconscious is not your subconscious. We have a collective subconscious okay. that everybody is tapped into. Um, and then that collective subconscious is part of a bri- a bigger consciousness, right? A, Interesting. Uh, something that extends even past what we are. It's okay. kind of the idea, right? And so your ego, you being James, mm-hmm. um, we are kind of made to believe that what you are is everything, right? right? You are the whole package. What I bring to the table is what you see here. But then we start seeing evidence of where this is proven to not be the case when we start seeing like telepathy and things like, right. you know, things that should not be normal or that show that people are connected in a different way. For thing. example, have you ever thought about, oh man, uh, thinking about Jake today, you know, it's a I wonder what he's up to. And then all of a sudden I'm calling your phone. Yeah, that has happened. It happens, yeah. right? Yeah. And so that kind of makes you scratch your head. Like, why was that? Why did you think about a person seemingly out of the blue before they called you? I mean, there's there's sayings all over the South of like, uh, if your ear's burning, someone's so thinking of you. Yeah. If, there's, if you have an itch in a certain place, you're going to receive a phone call. Like all that type of stuff. Yeah. yeah. So the idea is, hey, that person thought I'm going to call James. So mm-hmm. they put this intention out there. And so because you're hooked into this collective subconsciousness, you felt a little something, right? Or that made you think of that person, right? And so when we're sending it to our subconscious, yes, to a degree, I feel like you as an individual will make certain actions to make these things possible. Maybe you'll be extra alert for opportunities as you see them. But then you're also saying to the, the universe machine, if you will, Hey, this is something I want. I'm sending it out to you. I have given you the level of desire. I've put in a certain amount of energy into showing you how much I Mm -hmm. want this. And I'm going to put it into the system with the belief that you're going to spit that back out. Right, right. Interesting. Yeah, that's a a couple worms out of the bag. I like it. Kind of like a theme in spell work when you're getting into witchcraft and stuff is you do things very intentionally. And then you're supposed to just, yeah, put it out into the universe and let it be. You're not supposed to, like, you know, keep coming back to it and, like, poking the bear. You're like supposed to on. let the universe do its thing with it. Like, you did your part in putting it out there, and then you just kind of yeah, sit it. back and let it manifest as it's supposed to. And uh, I haven't practiced Wicca myself, but uh, I do know they have the rule of th- the threefold rule, right? That's, um, that is a common theme. And not all people who practice believe, believe in, in that. It. Sure. But yeah, basically, whatever you put out into the universe is going to come back to you threefold. Oh, I've heard that before. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. So yes, that is what that is what I had for this week is sigils. I hope everyone enjoyed my segment on sigils there, and it was informative, hopefully, um, or hopefully even just piqued your interest to go learn more. Again, um, this isn't uh, goodbye forever to you, sigils. We will see you again soon in one way or another. Um, Ashley, what do you got? I'm going to be talking about Wicca this week and just kind of what that is. So the Merriam-Webster Dictionary defines Wicca as a religion influenced by pre-Christian beliefs and practices of Western Europe that affirms the existence of supernatural power, 
such as magic and of both male and female deities. Is that the, is that the right way to say it? I yeah, always yeah. second guess myself. Because no, yeah. I pronounced it I wrong it. when I first started reading it in my head, so now I'm confused. But both male and female deities who you know, inherent nature, and it emphasizes, like, ritual observances of seasonal and life cycles. Isn't Wicca very much attuned to nature? Yeah. Okay. And I, I guess I kind of want to give, like, a precursor. I respect all religions. Um, I don't think it's bad to be a certain religion as long as you find peace in what you're doing. Like, that's really cool. 100%. Um, there is a little bit of clash with witchcraft and Christians, mm -hmm. just the persecution a lot of witches right. have faced, but I'm in no way like trying to spread any hate towards that. There's just historically been some differences. So there's kind of a lot, like witchcraft, Wicca, paganism, they all kind of go hand in hand. Um, historically, paganism meant people who were following a polytheistic religion, which means more than one god. Okay. There became more of a negative association um, as Christianity, um, Judaism, and Islam were spreading. Those are more monotheistic, and they really go against people who believe in more than one god. So it's taught right. to be evil and, you know, a sinful thing. So that kind of, due to that, there was a lot of, you know, if you believe in more than one god, you're believing in the devil, if you partake in these things, you're a bad person by nature. So what we think of like paganism now is more neo-paganism. Um, neo meaning new? Yeah. Okay. And by definition, Wicca is part of the broader category of neo-paganism. Oh. They both really focus on spirituality, um, connecting with nature, and really just putting out good into the world. In the 1950s, a man named Gerald Gardner kind of wrote a book about like, what is Wicca. And so a lot of that, what I'm talking about today, is going to go back on like what he wrote and what he believed. A really <coughs> cool thing about Wicca is you can kind of take what you think is cool, what resonates with you, and leave the rest. There's not really any rules to it, no set way to practice, no set of beliefs. Really, the only guideline is... As long as you're not harming anyone, do whatever you want. Oh, that's kind of weird. I mean, I like that. <coughs> the no harming. Like, that's it's a, a... It's a peaceful thing. Very it peaceful is. thing. I like that a lot. And yeah. Very similar to chaos magic is uh, kind of the taking what works for you and leaving the rest and uh, doing as you see fit as long as it's not her harming or hurting someone else. Yeah. It's really cool. Yeah, I find that really beautiful. And that was a big draw for me personally when I started researching this is I grew up very, you know, in a very structured religious way. Mm -hmm. And I didn't like that I'd have to believe in things that didn't really make sense to me. And there's just none of that here. Um, and they're like non-negotiables. They're like, if you yeah. don't believe this one facet, then you're like, you can't be one of us. I got hung up on a lot of that same stuff, mm -hmm. too. Yeah. Everyone's encouraged to show up as they are. You know, it's just... I really enjoy that part of it. You can practice either in a coven um, or just as like a solitude witch, you can just do it on your own. Sometimes if you practice in a coven, you do a little initi initiation ceremony, <clears throat> but that's not required either. Some people, if they practice alone, they do a self-dedication. And that's just kind of symbolic saying, I want to dedicate my life to being mindful. I want to keep growing. I want to keep connecting with the earth and nature. and that type of thing. 
a lot of Wiccans worship and invoke certain gods and goddesses in their rituals and spells. And the main goddess is the triple goddess. Um, it's seen as the maiden, the mother, and the crone. Okay. Um, and that just kind of is symbolic of our life cycles. And then the god is more of like how we our relation with the world and living in harmony with it that's kind of more the balance of life and death most Wiccans don't view death as some big scary thing a lot of them believe in reincarnation and that there's this divine energy that exists in all of us in like the trees and the earth Mm -hmm. and so when you die your energy is just kind of recycled back into that Mm -hmm. Um, I personally like the idea that I don't know, maybe I was floating around in the stars or something, just vibing out as an energy up there. (laughs) And I like to believe I chose this life, that Mm. I kind of could look down and see these are the struggles I'm going to face, and I want them because I'm going to grow from that. And I chose to be reincarnated or carnated into this body. You know, to throw this into a kind of a... This is out of left field. I understand that. But what you just described is very similar to the movie Soul by Disney. I don't I've know seen if that one, yeah. Okay, so it's an absolutely phenomenal animated film, uh, but it basically talks about um, a very rough sense of like purpose of life and finding it and like who you are and like how you become this thing. And it kind of uh, it, it plays with theories of the afterlife and before life and all that. Really beautiful movie. Excellent jazz music is in it. Um, really encouraged to watch. It's a. I think you two would specifically really like it. I'll have to check that out. Yeah, yeah that sounds cute. yeah I really like that and I just when I started believing more in that I know it kind of brought me a lot of peace Um, but yeah a lot of Wiccans follow the wheel of the year and celebrate Sabbaths Uh, these occur on solstices, equinoxes and cross quarter days what's a cross quarter day? so that's a day in between a solstice and an equinox Mm -hmm. like a half birthday for lack of general yeah. Knowledge. <laughs> yeah, just kind of like the midway point. Um, magic is really only practiced for positive purposes. You really don't do it for other people. It's all, you know, what you want in your life. I know when I first got into it, people were like, oh, can you do this spell for me? Mm-hmm. And that's not really what it's about. Right. Um, it's really to help you with your spiritual development, healing, and just finding deeper connection and meaning. There's also a big theme. You're not supposed to recruit people or, you know, try to convince them. I think a lot of people believe that everyone's free to choose, you know, whatever spiritual path works best for them. But there's, you know, no shame around, you know, sex or being gay or... Right, I think in a lot of religions, you're taught to not follow your desires. You're taught to follow some plan that's been set out for you Mm -hmm. and I like in this you're really supposed to follow what makes you happy and what's going to bring you joy in life and there's a lot of different ways like a lot of different types of witches Um, so there's the witches that follow uh, the Gerald Gardner um, the text that he wrote and it's more of like a hierarchical system there's like a high priest and priestess and that's a little too structured for me um but that is a way to practice um there's the alexandrian witch and i don't know they 
kind of have a more formal belief system as well. The solitary witch who just kind of practices on their own, but is still kind of following those, you know, systems and right. traditions. Is there, <coughs> excuse me, is there, di- does it warlock and witch actually matter or is that just like made up terms? It's just Not whatever preference you would yeah. like. Do you get I mean, possibly a, a male identifying person might wish to call themselves a warlock, but ultimately it's still, you're still a witch. Okay, yeah. that's kind of what I thought. <clears throat> to me, witch is gender <coughs> neutral. I would agree okay. with that. Um, but yeah, you, there are some people that, like in a coven, that would consider themselves a warlock. Interesting. Yeah, I didn't know if that was a... You know, if that was a term that isn't from, like, the Wicca or Pagan world, it was a term used, you know, exterior, like a third-party term, if you would. Mm-hmm. So I just wanted to get clarification. And, like, even if it was, if someone resonated with that, like, Go they could it. use it, and yeah. I don't think anyone would have an issue with it. It's cool. Yeah. Hmm. Um, there's the Eclectic Witch, who kind of pulls from various traditions for their spell works and uh, rituals. That's kind of what I most identify with because I can't I'm too all over the place to commit to a certain thing uh the traditional witch will kind of take more of a historical approach they look more at like the witch trials and the lore and incorporate that in um they'll kind of try to work with local spirits wherever they live the hereditary witch that's someone that's born into a family of witchcraft and a lot of their customs and traditions are passed down verbally I often think of, like, what kind of a childhood that would be like, you know? I do, too. Yeah, I feel like that would have to be interesting. I think very fun, I would have to assume. But uh, You would hope, at least, right? Yeah, yeah, especially with something as uh, accepting and open as, you know, like, Wicca, to, mm-hmm. to truly be, like, come as who you are, and... Uh, yeah, I think that would be really interesting. If you are someone who grew up, if you're a hereditary witch, or maybe you grew up in a household where your parents or even a parent um, had similar belief structures to this, please reach out to us. We'd love to hear from you. Um, you can send us an email at knock at the cellar door at gmail.com or just check out our website as well. Sorry to interrupt, Ash. No, I would definitely love to um, hear someone's experience with that because that's something I've often wondered about too. I'd like to think I'd be, I don't know, a little bit different. Yeah, right? Yeah. (laughs) I feel like, I don't know, my experience with religion as a child kind of stunted me, but you never know. There's a hedge witch that kind of works more with, like, liminal spaces (coughs) and more in the spirit realm. The kitchen witch, they incorporate witchcraft in a lot of their cooking. Um, So putting a lot of intentionality into the foods that they're using, maybe doing like a spell with the foods or um, something like that. A new avenue to research. I mean, it's also kind of a funny name. Kitchen Witch. Kitchen Witch. Kitchen Witch. Uh, The Green Witch is um, more nature-based. They're really in tune with the seasons, using a lot of nature in their spell work. And the Cosmic Witch, which... (laughs) Um, does a lot with astrology and the planets and that kind of thing but yeah I kind of touched on this a little bit at the beginning but I also want to say it again that historically witches have not been treated well and up until like the past few years you couldn't really be out as a witch that was something that you 
had to keep private because it wasn't safe. Like, you could get your kids taken away from you. Oh, wow. You know, if your neighbor sees a pentagram in your house and you're, you know, lighting candles and doing rituals, they're going to call CPS and be like, that person's going to sacrifice their kids to the devil. And because of the world we live in, you know, that was happening to people. Right. And it's not, sadly, that doesn't surprise me, right? Because Mm -hmm. most, I, I've been around three decades now and this is the most I've ever learned about this ever. Not, not out of like fear or anything, just, you know, haven't been around it. And, uh, it's interesting because like it's put in such a bad light, Mm -hmm. you know, there's such a very small sector section of this whole world that isn't, I don't want to say morally good, but isn't the safest, I guess you could say with it, you know, and this might be the conspiracy, not in me, but I kind of feel like it was by intention that we as a society are kind of made to feel scared or um, suspicious of it. And I think because it's so accepting and it, it potentially offers the ability for people to you know, really better themselves outside of the normal channels. It, I think it freaks out the powers that be uh, right now. And so I think there's a certain degree of like ostracizing people in that community or making them out to be mentally ill or not, yeah, right? up to no good. And there's also, to Ashley's point, because of the, I guess we'll say mistreatment or suspicion, there's a... a certain degree or commitment to secrecy in some of the magical lines of thinking because it's on one hand during the time like you could get killed right Right. or Mm -hmm. you know your your whole family could get harmed in some way and on the other hand um especially when it came into some of those earlier sigil practices that i was talking about with like summoning demons and stuff the people who did practice in that felt like well, let's not just have this fall in the hands of just anyone, Mm -hmm. right? Because if they don't fully understand the powers at work, they could be harming themselves or others. And so, yeah, I think it all kind of lends itself to then somebody being able to kind of wrap this story around, you know, witches being... I think generally when people think of witches, they think of, like, you know, Wicked Witch of the West or whatever, right? She's just, like, yeah, out here to... And generally all haggish right and uh i don't know i think they get a bad rap you know they definitely do and there's i still a lot of people have those misconceptions um when really i think it's very beautiful and peaceful and really just based on connecting with yourself and the earth i don't know how you spin that into a bad and evil thing it doesn't Mm -hmm. make sense to me but um I can understand, like, a lack of understanding, but then that yeah. should pique curiosity and not, like, immediate get well, rid of it. You know? Historically, ignorance is the biggest drive for fear. Sure. Because, like, <clears throat> my favorite example is you're scared of the dark until you understand the dark, right? As a child, most people grow up being scared of the dark because it's unknown. You can't see things. But then once you understand that the dark is just a form of light and so on and so forth. Doesn't right? feel it, change, it changes the perspective. And that's true with, I think, anything. You know, anything that humans do in a rude or <clears throat> fearful basis is usually based in ignorance. And if, like you said, it should spark curiosity, but unfortunately, you know, a lot of times it doesn't. Mm-hmm. 
Well, that's really cool, Ashley. Thanks for talking about that. Yeah. I didn't realize, you know, I consider myself somewhat knowledgeable about some of the uh, different witches out there. Well, there were a couple of them that uh, hedge witches in liminal spaces. That would that really piqued my ear. I'm gonna have to go down a rabbit hole with mm-hmm. that. I I love liminal spaces. I think all that's really uh, curiosity-inducing for me. Like the back rooms. You guys heard mm-hmm. this kind of stuff. Yeah, hmm. like that's kind of cool. Well, rock and roll. That's awesome. Oh, another thing I wanted to mention is if you do start researching more of this, um, just be careful about not partaking in any closed practices um, or culturally appropriating other right. people because I think that's important to be aware of. And, you know, in a lot of metaphysical stores, you can find stuff that I personally don't think. I, From the research I've done and coming from the people who they originated from i don't think it's maybe my place to partake so sure i just think that's something to be mindful of when you're doing your research absolutely um and in to ashley's point check out your local metaphysical store um you know obviously do your research on authors and stuff and make sure it's it's content that you want to inject in your life but um it's easy to buy stuff online, but there are tons of really great metaphysical stores that are around that uh, would love to, to have a new customer, whether that be for books or incense, candles, whatever it is. Um, plus, it's always fun to just go into those spaces, even if you don't buy anything, just to kind of be outside of that, that normal day-to-day um, environment. Um, another big theme is kind of living in tune with the moon cycles. Um, you kind of base a lot of your spell work off of that too, based on what moon phase it is. It might be more fitting to kind of look inward, do a little bit of meditation, and kind of see things that maybe you want to bring to fruition. And then in a different moon phase, you'll actually go about the spell work of trying to bring those things to fruition. Um, Even days of the weeks have meaning. Um, But yeah, a a big theme of Wicca and witchcraft is living by the moon phases. But yeah, I'm going to keep talking about these things. I'll go in depth on some more subjects. That's all I have for today. James, what do you have for us? All right. Uh, So my topic is nowhere near as fun or as pleasant as both of yours, nor positive, which brings me to a little trigger warning for anybody that's about to listen to this. Uh, This story does deal with almost every kind of abuse uh, possible. (laughs) Um, I know that sounds kind of wild, but... It does, and I'll do my best to not mention any intimate details about how things happen, but I'm also going to be factual, so there will be times where things get mentioned. But the topic is Rulo Nebraska Cult, and I don't know if either of you two have heard about this. Probably me talking about Can it. Can you but spell it? Yeah, R-U-L-O, R-U-L-O, in the state of Nebraska. It's a very small town, farming town. And this is back in the 80s, um, so his first appeal... And that's like one of the big uh, references I use for a lot of facts. And who's his? Uh, Michael W. Ryan, okay. the leader of this uh, this cult. Um, so he originally got arrested in 1985 for the uh, stuff I'm about to talk about. So this all started in 19... I want to say 78, 79, uh, James Wickstrom... It was a running around. He was a big leader of uh, very non-positive moral standings, such as like uh, white supremacy, gotcha. uh, heavy judgment upon women, a lot of a lot of just really really terrible things. Um, 
And uh, Michael W. Ryan went to a meeting with this guy, or a meeting of this guy, heard what he had to say, really fell in love with it, and kind of took it for running. But who's Michael Ryan? Right? This guy is an uneducated laborer, basically. He dropped out of high school, and he became a trucker at some point, and that's his occupation before he went into leading this cult. Um, what took him out of the trucking industry was a backing injury, a back injury in the 1980s. So I was a little ahead of myself, but that's when he started obviously uh, hitting financial strain and all this. And he kind of got desperate and started looking for means elsewhere of like how to support his mind and faith and all that type of stuff while his family. He did have a family who's married. He had uh, one son named Dennis Ryan, who he'll come up a little bit later on. But there was little to no information about where he came from other than that. Couldn't find anything on his parents. Couldn't find anything on uh, his wife, who I believe is still alive. Um, they've pretty well been hidden out of the public eye, which thankfully for them. Dennis Ryan is still kind of publicly open about it a little bit. He has done a couple uh, episodes for like Oxygen, and I think the other one was on A&E. Uh, back in the early 2000s, they did some interviews with these people. But to really open up, like, into going into the cult and how all this happened, this is a quote from his attorney, Richard Goose. Uh, oh, sh no, I lost it. Either way, it says, um, you're either insane or you have to be incredibly cruel or subhuman. Ugh. That's, I think, the, like, if not the exact quote, but very close to the exact way I feel about all of this. So... Michael Ryan went and started believing all this, and he started to claim that he could hear Yahweh, that was his word for God, in his head. He had a direct and divine connection with God uh, in or Yahweh in everything that he does day to day. And so he came to meet, uh, who was the first guy? Rick Stice was one of his uh, friends that he knew. And all of these farmers, all these people are farmers or had some type of agricultural business. In the 1980s, there was a huge... Uh, economic decline uh, in the 80s for farmers so they weren't making any money people were losing their farms left and right these people are desperate and undereducated Michael Ryan came in with some of the beliefs that James Wickstrom had and like kind of changed them up and moved them around and he came in and he gave these some people something to believe in so he eventually got a calling of about 25 people that were following him and this is a makeup of about 13 children uh, some women and then about the main seven guys I believe it was and so basically they moved to Rick Stice's farm and this is where the cult ultimately had its first start they moved to this farm because Rick Stice was like I can't afford to pay this you know everybody can move in we'll pay for it and so on and so forth eventually it was signed over to Michael W. Ryan if I remember correctly through like coercion and you know this belief in Yahweh what was their, uh, and maybe you'll talk about this, I'm yeah, sorry, but uh, what was, were they like uh, Christian leaning or? Good question. This is where I was hoping to get into. The Christian identity movement was the big thing in the 1980s. And this was part of James Wickstrom, uh, his idea, which was a white supremacist, anti-government, anti-tax, anti-Semitic organization that the belief was like heavily rooted in like Old Testament type of believing mm. with like some Nazi sprinkled in on top of sure. it, which is just lovely, right? Um, and here's the quote. I found the quote. Uh, the man was obviously either insane or he was unbelievably cruel or subhuman. 
And so he took these beliefs in something specific, which was called the arm test. The arm test is how everything was decided on this uh, farm. Everything from who did what jobs to what leadership was going to happen, who had hierarchy and so on and so forth. So through this arm test, right, it determined a sense of hierarchy. Michael was at the top uh, and then he had people second to him and then he had the kind of like laborers, I guess you could say, and then there was a slave level, right? We'll hit all of these. The women, fortunately, weren't too messed up with this, thankfully. Like, he did have multiple wives. He claimed that that was Yahweh's thing, so he married uh, Rick Stice's sister. He married somebody's uh, sister-in-law. He married an another woman, someone's mom. Yeah, he married Timothy Haverkamp's mom, Maxine Haverkamp. And so he had at 1.7 wives is what the uh, court documents say. But that's pretty much it. Besides, like, I'm assuming there was some forced upon nature of sexual acts and things, judging from uh, what he did to upcoming people. And you said it was an arm test? Yeah, so this arm test, great question. It's where you, uh, one person would extend out their arm, like at their elbow, and then you would ask a question to Yahweh. Michael Ryan would like hold on to your wrist like this and you'd ask a question like, oh, is Jacob fit to lead whoever? And he would push on it and if the arm fell, it was uh, a no-go. If the arm stayed up and sturdy, it was yes, this is how this was decided. And it was supposed to be un... It was so... so it's supposed to be solid, right? Like, there's no way you can fake this. There's no way you can cheat the system. Obviously, uh, if you're stronger than somebody, you can <laughs> force their arm to do whatever you yeah. want them to. And this was used on everyone from, like, five-year-olds all the way up to grown men and elderly people. So, yeah, you'd hold, like, back of the elbow, and they'd do this, and then they'd push, and I that's how it's described. It kind of reminds me, I was reading a book about, like, how to heal or deal with unhealed trauma and maybe some stuff that you repressed hmm. and it was a way to like lean on your body and your subconscious and you'd ask yourself a question and you'd kind of be like holding your arm a certain way or like go with your body but if your body like moved to the left then it was your subconscious saying like like you'd say did that happen in first grade did that happen in second grade and you'd wait for your body to do that and you'd say, okay this happened then and you could kind of try to like pinpoint huh. So there is like some psychology behind that that I've seen That's in other cool. areas. I wonder if it was something similar to that. That's a great kind question. Kind of based on your subconscious or if it was just something crazy he came up with and well, decided to... it does come from James Wickstrom. He's the one who taught Michael Ryan this arm test. So Michael Ryan, uh, come to find out through a lot of digging, he was actually pretty close friends with James Wickstrom. Like he helped lead uh, the Kansas chapter, if you would, of the Christian identity movement. So this guy had already some uh, foundation in this group, which is how he was able to coerce all these people to follow him, right? through this belief that he had a divine connection. Ultimately, over the course of a few years, Michael Ryan had these men, uh, which I'll list off here for you. Dennis Ryan, Rick, Rick Stice, James Thim, John David Andreas, Timothy Haverkamp, and James Haverkamp. These uh, people are the main characters of the following story. James, Timothy, John, the other James Thim, and Rick were all obviously below uh, Michael Ryan, but how it the hierarchy worked is it went Michael, Rick Stice, then to kind of off and on 
Timothy and uh, David, but typically James Haverkamp and James Thim weren't the lowest. They weren't slaves. They were just like doing things around the farm, laboring, gardening, that type grunts. of thing. Yeah, grunts, exactly. But uh, Rook Stice also had a son, Luke Stice, who was uh, five year, three to five years old at this time frame, right? They would go around stealing farm equipment for money. That's how they got, uh, like, they would steal stuff, resell it. That's how they kept money coming into the farm because none of them were actively working on anything, right? So they stayed on the farm and did all this, and people started getting desperate at some point because Michael Ryan was starting to become a little bit more extremist. They started uh, stockpiling a large, heavy amount of weaponry, automatic weapons, semi-automatic, it's guns, ammunition. At one point, I think I read they had 7,000 rounds of ammunition Jeez. combined. They hold out. Which is an insane amount of ammunition. And Michael Ryan's belief was that Armageddon is coming. What we're experiencing in this thing that's as bad as the Great Depression for farmers is the sign of Armageddon. We're going to have to fight our the other races and things that they hate for supremacy over the world. Very uh, World War II-ish vibes, if you would, right? So... Through this, Rick Stice got ultimately scared. You know, he didn't want to lose his farm. He didn't want uh, anything bad to happen to his family. So he ran away from the farm. And this is where everything kind of falls apart. And this happened in April of 1984. Okay. Right. He ran away to just kind of get away from things. I forget the reason. But either way, he got in contact eventually with the FBI. And the FBI started talking to him, getting more information, more information. And Michael Ryan didn't know he was speaking to the FBI, but he found out he was gone and was sneaking away, which demoted him down. He got demoted down so far that he was chained in front of a porch, whipped on the back, chained naked during the winter, uh, not fed, anything like that. Like, he was punished. Eventually, Yahweh, Michael Ryan, declared that, okay, you can move back into uh, a proper place of standing. You've proven your worth towards us. And so he kind of gets moved back up, but then David starts having doubts, and these other men start having doubts, and Rick Stice eventually left and never came back. He left. And this is where it ultimately fell apart. When it's 1985, Rick bounced. He's like, nope, never coming back. You can't make me. And he didn't. And so from there, Michael Ryan had to focus his anger on somebody else, and unfortunately that was uh, Luke Stice's, or I got ahead of myself, pardon me, he also focused his anger at, from Rick Stice on Luke Stice's son, uh, calling him severe, like verbally abusing him, calling him a dog, a mongrel, for, forcing him to eat dog food at times, push, pushing him downstairs into things, and eventually uh, Michael Ryan shoved him so hard that the kid hit a countertop or some type of post, it wasn't clear, had an internal brain injury and a spinal injury and died that night. Jeez. This is the five-year-old? Five-year-old, <clears throat> yeah. So that's his first murder, is uh, Luke Stice. And the, he was buried in, on the farm and moved on. And Rick Stice, and that's when Rick Stice was like, Was yeah, the wife deuces. still here at the farm? So yeah, the wife was still here, but they're powerless, essentially. You know, they're not going to go up against this man who would do that to a kid. Obviously, he's going to do it to me, right? Mm -hmm. I, that's fear. You know, there's sure. a lot of fear yeah. in this story. So Rick Stice leaves... Or no, his wife died. I'm sorry. I'm thinking of Cheryl. There's too many... 25 people to keep track of in here, you know? <laughs> yeah, so yeah, yeah. Uh, Rick Stice's wife died of an illness earlier on. 
Okay. And that's why he was having trouble with the farm and all that stuff. Hence the moving in. Right. Um, all the other people who took care of the kids, Cheryl, Ruth, which was uh, Ruth Ryan, which was Michael Ryan's uh, wife, all of them stayed in a separate trailer away from the men, so they weren't actually allowed to sleep anywhere together. Uh, the sexes were kept separated and all that type of thing, which is kind of interesting. But the kids stayed with the women, and, you know, blah, 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 and when a boy would become of age, he would get brought in. So, yeah, Luke Stice died. Rick Stice bounced. He's out. And now that's just left with James Thin, David, um, Timothy, and the other James, right? And James Thim is unfortunately our victim. I'm just going to say that now because it'll make things easier. One point, it's kind of convoluted on how all of this hatred got pushed towards James Thim, right? But Michael Ryan had this extreme anger. His cult is falling apart. People are leaving. People are talking behind his back, all this type of thing. So he's going to use a show of power. The court documents tell me that it was over Michael Ryan believing that James Thim had poisoned a turkey that they were saving to eat. He had somehow rat poison I don't, I don't know something but it was said to be poisoned and so he had to be punished severely because Yahweh in the arm test said this is the way it should be Michael Ryan said it should be this way <laughs> so what happened to James Thim is no short of disgusting uh, it started out as the punishment that Rick Stice had tied up with bailing wire which is for those of you who don't know it's very thin metal wire that if it breaks it's razor sharp uh he was tied with that into a, a abandoned hog cellar and what happened next took three days he was tied there and you know saying why why i'm so sorry like this entire time this person solemnly believed that if he prayed and said out loud so often that he was sorry that it would end but unfortunately he's praying to a human who has no empathy and so his punishment was to be tied in this hog shed with bailing wire, occasionally barbed wire, uh, naked for days. He wasn't fed, but he continued incredible amounts of punishment. Uh, he was forced to eat feces at one time. He was forced to have intercourse with a goat multiple times. He, uh, which was also Michael Ryan's previous torture for Luke Stice. Rick and Luke Stice were forced to do in, uh, sexual actions upon each other and things. Oh my God. Absolutely terrible. That's kind of the first day, right? That's a lot for the first day. It gets worse. The second day comes around and Michael Ryan's like, no, we really have to teach you a lesson. So each man, there's seven of them, does 14 or 14 or 15 lashings with a whip on his back. Cut open, bleeding. He's then flipped over, forced to be on all fours, and violated with the end of a pickaxe and a shovel. Jesus. multiple times uh, which ultimately ruptured his internal organs and bowels uh, so he had internal bleeding at this point he's still alive, he's still conscious and talking it goes, he Michael Ryan amps it up and this is where everyone had to participate in the whippings, everyone had to participate in the violating, everyone had to participate in the shooting off of fingertips uh, his son was forced to shoot off fingertips and do the following acts and so on with James Thim, David Andreas, and the others, right? Through that, they kind of left for the night, left him how he was, bleeding and left alone. The next day, they come back to him, and uh, Michael Ryan's like, Yahweh's decided that you're going to die. This is it. So they torture him some more, give him some more whippings, and then Michael Ryan proceed proceeds to skin his leg. Jesus. That's yeah, and um, 
he is still conscious. David Andreas confirmed in not only the show that I watched, but also in court documents, he was still conscious at this point, begging for forgiveness from Yahweh, just pleading with everything in this human soul. And at that point, he commanded his son to break one leg as he held it. And he said, no, no, son, that's not how you do it. He then proceeded to break the left leg in a much more severe way. And at that point, uh, James then lost consciousness and Michael Ryan proceeded to stomp in his chest so much that it flattened his sternum, his ribs, and his heart. He was dead. The men were then commanded to go bury him in a six foot by six foot hole on the farm and so on and so forth. Just a few short days later, James Haverkamp and David Andreas were arrested for stealing a uh, mechanical sprayer from a farm word vomit. Everything they knew, had seen, had done, vomited to the police, which then gave warrants and the ability for the FBI, ATF, and local and state law enforcement to do a raid on this property. At that point, everyone's arrested for the things that have been done. The women, thankfully, didn't have any part in the crime, so they weren't involved in the court cases and everything, which I find quite lucky, you know. It's really fucked up to force everyone to participate Mm -hmm. because then you, it's just like, well, if I go down, you're all coming down with me. Yeah. Yeah. And not even beating people down mentally. That's, yeah, incredibly sadistic. And this is, I mean, this, this is a 200, uh, or excuse me, a 34 page document, just one appeal. And there's a second appeal he did with some different information in it too. Um, To go through it, to read it, like it was multiple breaks get up a walkway because some of the things in it is just awful. Sure. You know? Yeah. But so James them is dead. Luke's dead. Everyone's arrested. David and Andreas, I believe is the one who showed them where Rick's body is. And then someone else showed them where Luke's body is. They were exhumed, autopsied. Uh, Michael Ryan was charged with first degree murder. And then he was charged with second degree on Luke's, but through a plea bargain, it was reduced down to something else, which I find absolutely disgusting. Like, no way. So he was uh, charged with lethal injection. He was supposed to be killed in 2000-something through his one of his appeals or through... Uh, no, it was through the Luke Stice case because each death has its own court case, right? Through the Luke Stice case, he pleaded a certain way that afforded him life in prison, not death penalty. I still think he should have been killed. Either way, he spent the next his life in prison getting various diseases and cancers, as he deserves, and died in prison actually pretty recently in the early 2000s. Or maybe 2010s. The question I really arose to was how. How do you get 25 people to be in this environment? How do you get 25 people to believe something so strong? And and it's it comes out of fear. You know, it, a lot of it comes out of fear, but a lot of it comes out of Uh, ignorance again you know like these people don't have the highest education they don't have the best um critical thinking you know i would dare say and it's just unfortunate they got wrapped up into it And, and psychology tells us at some point if you're so far into it already it's scarier to leave it than it is to just stay there and that's unfortunate you know it's a survival mechanism I assume a lot of it would be 
like a initial gaslighting, manipulation, oh, narcissistic 100%. tendencies to get you like hooked. And then when you start getting people to participate in those little ways, then yeah, then I feel like that psychologically, especially if it's uh, based around religion, mm-hmm. I feel like that's uh, often misused to. Everybody wants the answers, right? They want to not be afraid to die and leave their loved ones behind. So when uh, people kind of twist that and then uh, then get you to be committed by, you know, whether that's involving you with crimes or some other way, it's... Um, I do want to read just a little section, sorry to interrupt, just a little section of the appeal to give more uh, educated background to what this was, right? So this is uh, the facts as reflected by the record are as follows. And this is from the State versus Ryan uh, appeal. During the summer and fall of 1984, Ryan and several other men and women, among, along with 10 of their children, moved to a farm owned by Ora Richard Rick Stice, located near Rulo, Nebraska. The group was united by their common interest in the teachings of a certain Reverend James Wickstrom. Group members studied the Bible and referred to God as Yahweh. The group also believed that Ryan and other members of the group possessed the spirits of archangels and that the infant of a female group member who became pregnant while at the farm was divinely conceived. No, just no, no, no. Um, members of the group considered Ryan to be the leader and obeyed his orders without question. Ryan sometimes referred to himself as king. Ryan claimed to hear Yahweh speak directly to him and allegedly saw visions in the sky. He further claimed to know what other group members were thinking and to be able to predict uh, things which later came true. That last part is probably the part where he used most of its influence like i said these people were uh, less educated but he was a trucker he was actually a charming guy for most reports he understood people and he understood manipulation it's not hard to predict people's day-to-days if you pay attention um and so that's just unfortunate you know uh Here's another section. The group also had strong survivalist and paramilitary characteristics. Large amounts of food, ammunition, and weapons, including fully automatic automatic weapons, were stockpiled on the farm. Each of the men in the group was assigned a military rank and was able to work up the rank of general. Those men include Ryan's son, who was 15 years old at the time these incidents occurred. But he was treated as a man. Uh, The other men on the farm, in addition to Michael and Dennis Ryan, included Rick Stice, James Thin, Timothy Haverkamp, David Andreas, and James Haverkamp. The rest is where it all starts, so I'm not going to read that. But, um, yeah, it's a very sad story, in my opinion. It's really unfortunate that two people uh, died. And one thing that made it even harder to hear was watching the Oxygen episode on, um, I think it's called Colts in America or or something like that. It had the mother of James Thim speak, and it it sounded like he was just a normal guy. Mm-hmm. mid-twenties, confused about life. What does he want to do? Where does he want to go? What does he believe? Grew up in a very structured Christian home and kind of been thrust into this new way of thinking and thought, oh, this is great. This is phenomenal. I mean, he talked so highly of it. And for his demise to be something so terrible when all he was looking for was camaraderie and peace is just, terrible. I think, probably the worst thing about the whole the whole thing. Yeah. The child was... Yeah, that's that's really just bad. Yeah. There's uh the whole thing is bad. Yeah. You know, there's no way around it and I promise that uh, next episode I will do a happy episode. I promise. <laughs> I swear for everyone listening out there it's not always going to be dark and gloom for me, I promise. <laughs> well, yeah, that was uh you said that was in Nebraska too. Yeah, super uh 
you know, you, that's not where you expect a cult, right? Like, yeah. you don't think just middle of Nebraska. So is, is Rollo going to be on your list of places we no. should go visit? No. No, okay. not at all. No, all right. I try to avoid the uh, more negative areas. Yeah. Well, Ed, we got a little bit of everything on this episode then. Yeah, we Definitely. got a little, little cult action and... Um, yeah, that was uh, really interesting. Um, uh, cult to cult. Yeah. Uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> a cult to cult. That's, that's for sure. That could be our new... Uh, we'll put that on a t-shirt or something. I, I do have a t-shirt to share with you later. Yeah, we'll have to take a look yeah. at it. Uh, well, I hope everyone enjoyed uh, this episode of the Cellar Door Society. This was Jacob. I'm James. I'm Ash. And we're signing out. <laughs>